We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to The Global Election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. For 15 years, American foreign policy has been dominated by a single word, terrorism. Barack Obama may not use the phrase global war on terror. America's main enemy may have shifted from al-Qaeda to ISIS. The tools used in the fights may have changed dramatically. But terrorism, that imperfect way of describing a complex battle, remains America's overriding fear. It is what keeps presidents up at night and what some politicians seem quite happy to exploit. In this election, there are two candidates with very different worldviews. Two candidates who talk about terrorism in very different ways, who've promised to deal with the issue in very different ways. And how they approach it, how they deal with it, how they choose to fight it, will have an impact on us all. Welcome to the global election. In a moment, I'll be joined by Sally Leavesley and Paul Rogers. But first... Chris Phillips is the former head of the National Counterterrorism Security Office here in the UK. It's the police unit that advises the government on its counterterrorism strategy. He now advises cities and governments on how to protect themselves against a threat from terrorism. He's one of those people who has to actually put politicians' words into action. Chris Phillips, thank you very much for joining us today. How important is the US to Europe's fight against terrorism? Well, the intelligence uh, circles that uh, Europe and in particular the UK work with the USA is extremely important. In fact, certainly from the UK's perspective, we have the five eyes, which is a combination of the UK, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And and we uh, put together all our intelligence and share it uh, very closely. So, yeah, it's very, very important to the UK in particular, but also very important to the Europe as a whole. And America's cooperation with Europe, its leadership often on this issue, how much of that do you think is down to who sits in the White House? There will always be a close relationship between uh, Europe and the US. However, of course, it comes down to individuals and, and themes and everything that we've seen in the US does point to Donald Trump having a completely different view of the world. So that is a bit uh, unpredictable and unpredictableness is not good in the world of counterterrorism and security. Let's look then a little bit at Donald Trump and what you think his election might mean for this fight on terrorism. Are there things that concern you? Well, yeah, very much so. I think uh, pretty much the whole of the security world would be uh, very concerned if Donald Trump got in power, simply because of some of the things he's saying, some of the attitudes that he's showing towards Europe and towards the rest of the world. And uh, as I said before, the unpredictableness of what he's coming up with. And uh, I'm sure many of his uh, ideas won't be followed through, but of course, some may. He's had the rare 
privilege, I guess we'd say, of uh, honour, perhaps, of uh, appearing in some recruitment videos for ISIS and Al-Shabaab. Do you think that his election, if it were to happen, would be a boost to these groups? Well, if you imagine that pretty much what ISIS are trying to achieve is to split the world down racial divides, and not only racial divides, but to religious divides. In particular, they would like to see the Christians seen to pick on the Muslims. And, of course, everything that he's doing and what he's saying feeds that narrative. And uh, if ISIS can allow the mainstream uh, Muslim to feel as though that there's a divide, then, of course, they've got more chance of getting more people coming over to their way of thinking. And, and, and everything that he said really is exactly the message that ISIS is trying to put out as well. Uh, and turning to Hillary Clinton, is it fair to say that she would have a similar position to Barack Obama, but perhaps you might describe it as marginally tougher? Yeah, tougher, a slightly tougher line. But I think that the key thing is that people know where she stands and she's got the experience that goes with it to follow through on that. So I think the world's kind of uh, really hoping that she gets in into power. The only people that I can see any benefit to uh, Donald Trump getting in power is uh, ISIS and the terrorists, because, as I said before, he is really trying to divide the country and um, and that really doesn't work. He he sounds very much like the man in the pub that says uh, what he thinks, but uh, when you've got your finger on the trigger, that's uh, a, a dangerous position to be in. And just finally, Chris, um, you've got a number of colleagues and former colleagues uh, in the US who you at very high levels who you've dealt with on a regular basis. Do they have similar concerns to you, those that you've spoken to about the possibilities of a Trump presidency? Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, you will get people that like the thought of Trump coming into power. But generally, I mean, the world of terrorism, world of security, one bad call can really influence many, many people's lives. So I think the fact that he's so unpredictable, the fact that some of the things he's saying play into the hands of ISIS really does worry anyone that's got any part of the counterterrorism strategy uh, responsibility. So, yeah, I, I think the world is hoping that Hillary Clinton gets in. But uh, really, as the uh, least worst case scenario from Donald Trump. Chris Phillips, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Global Election here on Monocle 24 with me, Steve Bloomfield. I'm joined now by Dr Sally Leavesley and Professor Paul Rogers. Dr Sally Leavesley is an advisor on security and public protection to businesses and governments, and she joins me here in the studio. And Paul Rogers is the author of Irregular War, ISIS and the New Threat from the Margins. He's also Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University, from where he joins us. Sally Leavesley, before we get into how we think things might change after the election, how would you describe America's current counterterrorism stance and policies? America's current counterterrorism is it's mixed up very much with international interests where America's power is going to be protected. And it means that there's a rather irregular set of, of approaches that are going on. A lot of it is responsive, but a lot of it also has become very clever in the technological field where they've brought what you would call standoff approaches to direct attacks on, on their enemies. So we see an America that's retreated back with its personnel and is now fighting with technology around the world. And we'll have to see how successful that's going to be. 
Paul Rogers, there's been a semantic change under President Barack Obama. There's no longer any talk of a global war on terror. But do you think that the gist has changed much? I don't think the gist has changed, no. I'd agree very much with Sally in the, the changing in the nature of the way that um, wars against ISIS and al-Qaeda are being fought. We're beyond the era of boots on the ground, tens of thousands of boots on the ground in Iraq and uh, certainly in Afghanistan, are regarded now as a pretty dismal failure. They tried a rather different system, if you like, in supporting the rebels in Libya, and that was much more indirect with very little on the ground except special forces. But that too hasn't worked because Libya is in a real state now. So we're in really a move towards what uh, I would call remote control warfare, doing it from a distance. The early signs are that that is not making a great deal of difference. If you look at the way the war against ISIS is being fought, it is incredibly intense. Over the last two years and two months, the Americans reckon they've killed about 30,000 ISIS supporters in the air war, with other countries involved, including Britain. Yet ISIS itself is surviving. It's been hard-pressed. But meanwhile, we see something of a comeback with al-Qaeda, particularly in Syria and elsewhere. So it's almost as though when you actually find some way of controlling one of the Islamist entities, then the problem surfaces somewhere else in a rather different way. So it's a very uncertain period for the United States. In broad terms, though, Obama has been much more against any kind of major presence on the ground. I think that will probably hold whoever wins the election next month, though. I think we're also mistaken if we think that major powers such as the United States, the United Kingdom and others actually will have a huge effect on what is a life cycle of terrorism that we're seeing, which we could say is a response to global communications, rapid change and fear of the future. That life cycle has now really, it's flashed over so much that over 80 countries have now recruits that are, have been sent to Syria. We can see how it's changed the behaviour of young people. And once we get that, that's got its own life cycle. And we have to say how effective are the national governments anyway, or should we be looking at this life cycle of terrorism and when is it going to change itself? I'd agree very much with that. In, in fact, uh, one of the things which I think is, frankly, it's recognised by f very few analysts is that there's been quite a fundamental change in the kind of drivers of what you might call revolts from the margins. If you look at the way that the uh, Arab Awakening or the Arab Spring started in 2011, it was certainly a reaction against uh, autocracy and lack of freedom, but also it was a perception of people being seeing themselves as marginalised compared with life chances. One of the extraordinary things is the one country that has made pretty successful transition, partial transition, to more democratic governance is Tunisia. But that is a country which has seen proportionally probably more of its young people going to join the likes of ISIS than virtually any other. It's partly explained by the fact that Tunisia has 11 million people and has unemployed graduate cadre of about 140,000 people. It's this perception of being on the margins that groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda latch onto. And it's not just across the Middle East. As Sally says, this is something of a worldwide phenomenon, still largely unrecognised by most Western leaderships, I'm afraid. And also, I think it's children on the move. It's not just the dispossessed or the marginalised. I think it's the... 12 to 15-year-olds sitting in their bedrooms in America, in the United Kingdom, in Europe, 
who are seeing something they can do for the world if they join this secret society. And absolutely, of course, this is also in the era of, uh, you know, the new social media. And uh, these groups, particularly ISIS at its peak, became very practiced in using a whole range of methods of actually communicating with people, which have never been, there's never really been a way found to control them. But the very fact that you have young people in many parts of the world willing to join this kind of movement means that you've actually got to look at the very motivation of those people. Why is it that even in the first place they're interested in this? Why is it that they are so dissatisfied with their current situation that they are looking to a kind of a movement which they might initially think of noble even though it's anything but noble? And I think we're still in the very early stages of getting to understand that. Sally, on that point then, is there an issue here that we need Western leaders, and we're talking about the US here, so let's talk about American leaders, to, in a sense, accept that military action alone isn't going to solve this, that there are some things, as you say, it's a life cycle, there are some things we maybe can't do about it. That feels like it's quite a stretch for a US political leader to sort of hold up their hands and say, hey, look, I know we're exceptional, I know we're the strongest nation in the world, but actually... When it comes down to it, not much we can do about this. Well, sometimes when we look at leaders, we also look at what are the unexpected effects that may happen from their actions. <laughs> and we've got two very different potential leaders of the United States. We've got someone who may become an amazing female role model as the leader of the United States. We have someone who appears quite chaotic and disorganised, non-political, and really someone who knows negotiations, not political ideology. So those two will have a different impact and they'll have a different impact in the way they look at terrorism. We're already getting a sense of it in their debates and what they're saying. Hillary Clinton is socially conscious and has a willingness to reach out and to look at inequality and unfairness. Donald Trump doesn't even look at that. He's a negotiator and a businessman. He's looking for how you negotiate for the business advantage. Terrorism, they're just the bad guys. So what we get from him is total unambiguous statements against terrorism. Now, the message that may go out if he does run the administration is absolutely no tolerance, closed borders, support to countries who will help themselves to visibly work against terrorism. A very strong, unambiguous line. Young children, 12 to 15, may start to think from that line that they're not going to have a successful career as a suicide bomber or a terrorist. They may see so many negatives. You really think that, 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 that a President Trump would actually lead to lots of people that would have become jihadis, that would have joined these groups going no, actually, I'm going to get crushed, there's no point. I see this as an unintended and unexpected effect of the personality of the man, not as a deliberate policy. So I'm looking for, after three years, if Trump takes over the White House, and he would take three years to have an effect compared to Hillary Clinton, whether we see a reduction in recruitment of the world's children to terrorism. And yet, Paul Rogers, there's another argument here, which is that a man that is so plainly making this into a war between 
Islam and the rest of us is actually going to lead to more people wanting to be recruited by these organizations? That's certainly possible. I, mean, I think on balance, uh, for different reasons, both Vladimir Putin and the leaders of ISIS and al-Qaeda would prefer to have Donald Trump in the White House than Hillary Clinton. I think Trump obviously will be much more gung-ho. He will want to respond instantly to major threats. If anything, I think Hillary Clinton, with all her diplomatic experience, will be broadly rather more cautious. And there will be new attacks, there will be new challenges. And I think if, in fact, Trump responds very forcefully and uses sort of crude, large-scale military force as the means of replying, I think in many ways this will be the kind of thing that uh, al-Qaeda and the ISIS leadership actually want. One of their aims throughout has been to present themselves as the guardians of Islam under attack from the Crusaders and, of course, the Zionists. But the point about this is they therefore, in a sense, need to have war. They, they even come out of a war view. Now, the idea that they are actually the guardians of Islam is anathema to the overwhelming majority of Muslims. But in a sense, if you have a real hawkish, perhaps unpredictable person in the White House, this is actually, in broad terms, I think, good for them, which means in turn, that it, we're moving into a very uncertain period if Trump does win in November. I think unpredictable behaviour sometimes is an advantage in international relations, which are very set and very predictive at the moment. If we start to look at US international relations being a little bit more strongly set abroad, and exactly as Hillary Clinton has said, in exactly the same mode as all of the international relations and all of the international agreements have set out, we can predict that a lot of the trends where America has failed may continue to fail. I think if we look at the unintended consequences of the more chaotic, totally unpredictable, but very unambiguous Trump, I'm looking solely at the psychological impact on a generation of children who may be nine now, when they're 12 to 15, what is going to be their view about their successful career in terrorism? Even terrorists such as the ISIS leaders or al-Qaeda, they also cannot predict and absolutely persuade. People become suicide bombers, for example, for very, very many different reasons. Yeah, but sorry, Sally, we also we've had cases across the Middle East, from Pakistan to Yemen uh, to Afghanistan to Iraq, where people have turned to these groups and even become suicide bombers themselves because of actions that have been carried out by the US, whether that is the bombing of a wedding party in Yemen or drone killings in Pakistan. That has helped lead to them becoming radicalised. Now, we can't say in both ways, oh, well, look, you know, Donald Trump's going to somehow persuade people they're going to get killed. But at the same time, He's also going to be more unpredictable. Surely that's going to lead to very similar things we've seen in the past. With young people who decide to join this type of movement, I think we have to look at what persuades them. People who've been suicide bombers, who have been able to have been interviewed and information's been gained about the factors, have many, many different factors that have caused them individually to become suicide bombers, which is the top of the tree of the career in being a terrorist. I think we have to look at where the persuasion comes that also grooms them. And the persuasion will use a narrative. At the moment, there is very little else that is unambiguously persuading them that becoming terrorists is a great way to help the world. 
Now, strong leadership that is unambiguous about terrorism sends a totally different message. If you have a socially conscious line about terrorism, I know it's counterintuitive, but my view is on the evolving child's mind. There is an ambiguity in that. And that's where cultural sensitivity, which marks a lot of the approaches, doesn't always be accompanied by total unambiguous message against terrorism. So children at the age of nine are not learning that in their classroom. In what way is the current US policy socially ambiguous towards terrorism? Because it doesn't look like it from here. It's quite interesting because when you see what has been happening sort of with the Obama administration, and I've given President Obama very high points for this personally because he's tried to soften down a hard stance and he's tried to show America as having a more reasonable and diplomatic face. But predictably... In the future, looking at the stance he set up, the actual reactions to it have not been positive for America. We've also got two types of terrorism. The one I worry about even far more than ISIS and al-Qaeda and other groups is the proxy terrorism, which is now merging. And that is where we are seeing nations getting very close into the terrorist groups and using them as proxies. And we're seeing this in the cyber world, where you've got deniability of nations actually going into hostilities through terror activities. And we've seen this in Europe, in Ukraine, very significantly. Paul Rogers, I just want to move away perhaps from Trump for a moment to look at how things may or may not change under President Clinton. She's made it fairly clear that she would have a a more hawkish stance on Syria. Do you think that overall there will be a, a slight diversion from the mean if Hillary Clinton comes to power? I think there probably will be. She certainly wants to take a stronger line against uh, ISIS. If anything, she wants to take a more nuanced line against China and Russia, which are the two other big challenges, security challenges for the United States. But on ISIS in particular, yes, I think she's actually wanting to, for example, support the Kurdish and Sunni Arab fighters a lot more, arm them more. In overall terms, I think she is broadly likely to be more hawkish than Barack Obama, on a range of issues. But in terms of a very major change, it's going to be more a matter of a degree rather than kind. But that in any way depends very much on what actually happens even between now and uh, the inauguration day next January and then what happens afterwards because we still don't know how ISIS itself is responding to the pressure that's under. We still are not sure how some of the other movements are developing right through from Boko Haram through to Shabab and through to the various groups in Yemen. But in broad terms, I would expect Hillary Clinton to be a tougher president on all of these issues than Barack Obama, more predictable certainly than Donald Trump. And the thing I worry most about him is the sheer unpredictability of his response to particular events. But unpredictability can be a circuit breaker. Paul, what I've been thinking may happen, and again, it's unpredictable, but what I think may happen with that personality is he's sending a lot of subliminal and direct messages in his statements to Putin at the moment. And from Syria's point of view, we can see Trump taking a totally non-political but very much a business view in negotiation. What if he says to Putin, sit down 
and we'll sort out that America is not going to conflict with Russia's wishes in Syria. You can get these totally different changes because he is not being driven by that administration. Absolutely true. And of course, the thing is, how then will Vladimir Putin react? In some ways, it will be music to his ears. I mean, we have to remember that Russia is playing major roles in Ukraine, in Crimea, and of course in Syria, but it is actually economically an extremely weak country. You know, Russia in total has a GDP of less than half of that of Britain, and a 16th of that of the United States. So I think in some ways, Putin is incredibly good at playing bad hands of cards very well and has succeeded in giving the impression that Russia is a very major power. It is somewhat hollow. In a sense, if you treat it as a very major power, as I think Trump would probably tend to do, Putin probably will push it even more. So I think, again, certainly unpredictability. But I think in an era where you have the potential for crises to expand and escalate very unexpectedly, I'm not too happy about too much unpredictability among leaderships. We'll leave it there. Professor Paul Rogers and Dr Sally Leavesley, thank you both very much for joining us on The Global Election. Next time on The Global Election, we'll be talking about climate change. And my guests will include Connie Hedegaard, the Danish politician who chaired the ill-fated Copenhagen talks in 2009 and then spent five years as the EU's commissioner for climate action. When you see a presidential candidate like Donald Trump say that climate change is a hoax created by China and to then say that he doesn't believe action needs to be taken. Does that fill you with some amount of trepidation? Yeah, I must say it's absurd, but it's absurdities on absurdities, you know. And this is really not just absurd and something you can smile at and, you know, just sort of uh, shake your head. It's really, really serious what is happening in the next four years in the U.S. If U.S. suddenly said, okay, now we are withdrawing from Paris, as Donald Trump has said he would, we want to, as he's putting it, renegotiating Paris, we all know that then Paris would be dead. We all know that then you will not have an international framework and the agreement that marks anymore. Many of us at least know how long time it would take to agree anything alternatively. That is not going to happen, and we would waste a lot of time, a lot of very, very precious time. If we listen to scientists, we know that time is running out. So you could put it this way, that the world simply does not have the time for Donald Trump, not understanding this to denying the the scientific facts it would really be very, very serious, not just for the United States and its leading position, but for all of us. That's it for Episode 5 of The Global Election. Episode 6 will be available from next Friday. You can't vote for us, but you can rate us. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating on iTunes? You can also find us on SoundCloud, monocle.com slash radio, and wherever you find your podcasts. The Global Election is produced by Rhys James. It's researched by Bill Lutie and it's edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.